Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about the philosophy of Manchester United Football Club. Now, there's no doubt that there's been a crisis of confidence at Old Trafford since Ferguson left. And there's so many different factors that really explain it. I think the most simplest one is that nobody in football wanted to take on Manchester United after Ferguson left. He was so... I've always described Alex Ferguson as a, as the last of the Mohicans figure. He was just the perfect person in a perfect situation that just... He had just enough old school about him, just enough new school, and he was there just at the beginning of the Premier League, and all of these little bits and pieces, and he was at the perfect club with the perfect sort of infrastructure behind it that allowed the sort of dominance that he had. In other words, you don't get that level of dominance just by being a great manager. Everything has to go right for you to have 25 years of sort of unprecedented success. And so naturally, you know, the changes that happened in football from sort of 1986 to when he leaves, it was always going to be very difficult for him to be replaced. Now, if you sort of compare it to when Arsene Wenger left, people seem to suggest that it really was going to be so difficult, that it was going to be hard. And yet, in reality, there had been such a level of sort of slow rot decay that had really taken, you know, had really become to overshadow and really dominate Arsenal. That actually, by the end of it, it was almost a relief when he left. In other words, the the tension, the, the sort of civil war that had overtaken Arsenal with the people saying, you know, look at what Wenger has done, look at how he's managed to you know, build this club, the stadium, the training ground, the, the style of football. And if we just believed a bit more, and if we just gave him some more time, he would turn it around. And then you sort of had, on the flip side of it, you had those who said, he's had his time. The world has moved on. He's never going to you know, re- you know, go back to the, the Arsene Wenger of yore, you know, who was more of a sort of taskmaster, whose teams were tougher, more defensive. And that really... By the end of his sort of spell at Arsenal, he'd become almost sort of a grandfatherly figure at a public school. You know, in other words, he was a little bit like goodbye Mr Chips in some ways. In other words, you know, people loved him and respected him, but at the same time, there wasn't that discipline. In other words, there wasn't... All Arsenal did was just the same sort of... Almost pastiche. In other words, they were weak at the back. They were mentally fragile. But going forward, they could have their moments. But it was, you know, clearly it reached the point of no return. And I think even he realised that to an extent. But with United, it it was slightly different. With with Ferguson, there there was a sort of a gentle decline, but it was never as obvious. In other words... Yeah, Arsene Wenger at some point was always an, an ideological manager. He always had a, a philosophy, an idea of how he wanted to play football. And what, I suppose what Wenger lost was the ability to find players that fit, fitted that philosophy. In other words, he was never really able to replace Thierry Henry. He was never really able to pl- replace sort of Patrick Vieira. 
whereby Ferguson was completely different. Ferguson was was non-ideological to a certain extent. Now, the only philosophy he had was of Manchester United, Sir Alex Ferguson and winning. It was the, just the most simple trifecta is that if Sir Alex Ferguson was doing well, Manchester United were doing well. And if Manchester United were doing well, that meant they were winning. And if they were winning, that meant Sir Alex Ferguson was doing well. Which then meant Manchester United. And it was just that sort of... That point was just everything about United. So in other words, it didn't really matter how he did it. In other words, because of the amount of changes that went in through football in that sort of time period, is that had he been a, a, a philosophical manager, let's say if you compare him to someone like Brian Clough. Now, see, Brian Clough's moments really were a different era. In other words, his was the era where you had a trainer with a magic sponge and, you know, a bucket of water. You had a assistant coach who, you know, effectively acted as a talent scout. And you had the front man and the manager. And that's really all you needed. And if you had the brio and if you had the, the ideas and if you basically were willing to work hard enough at it, you could take, you know, a small team to unimaginable glory in Derby and in Nottingham Forest. But obviously, by the time you reached the 80s, football was redeveloping. The stands were getting all-seater. You had, you know, foreign players coming in. You had big transfers. You had owners that were pouring money into it. You had teams becoming PLCs in Manchester United and Tottenham Hotspur. And suddenly, one man and, and his assistant wasn't going to really make success. You needed something more than that. And really, effectively, it's an adapt or die sort of principle. And really, sort of Brian Clough found it quite easy to adapt in the sense that, for him, winning wasn't wasn't the be all and end all. In other words, if his you know Nottingham Forest team played good football, finished in the top ten, top seven, top five, produced great footballers, he was quite happy that if they got to the odd cup final. Brilliant. If they won the league, that would have been fantastic. But it was quite easy, you know, effectively to oscillate. But oscillate at to a certain level. In other words, football had moved on, but Brian Clough hadn't. Which is really what almost set in the elements of decline. In other words, it was so much, you know, because he was such a, a singular character that when he loses, you know, Peter Taylor, he isn't really able to recover from that. He isn't able to say, OK, well, maybe I need a bigger coaching staff maybe I need to take more of a back seat and maybe get a younger coach in under me he never really and so as a result it becomes ever more declining and the stresses on him you know and obviously then lead to sort of tragic you know last couple of years of his sort of managerial career so getting back to Ferguson the way how he was able to respond was simply that trifecta was that winning Manchester United and Ferguson. And all the, the ways and means of doing so didn't matter. So in other words, there were Man United teams which were just experienced teams. So in other words, he might stick um, you know, a defender in defensive midfield for half the season, keep it tight at the back, win lots of games 1-0. And if there was no better team in that year, you know, what Man United would do would by sheer force of will. And they'd get to 76, maybe 82 points, 
and they would, you know, last two months of the season, they wouldn't lose. Or you would have a sort of Manchester United team with a huge amount of attacking talent. You know, they're a bit like when they ended up with sort of Rooney on the left, you had Tevez, you had Cristiano Ronaldo. There was all different types, and even in sort of the, the 90s, when, you know, sort of Scandinavian football was not quite, well, let's say it's at its peak, he was able to get, you know, Schmeichel for, you know, 750 grand in 92. He was able to, you know, you had Ronnie Johnson, you had Heddingberg, all of those sort of players. And obviously, once that, you know, declined, once, you know, Norway dropped off, once, you know, Sweden became a lot more, you know, prosaic, he wasn't able to buy Scandinavian players. So then he just sort of shifts emphasis. Which then really left, and so the problem was is that the way how his, you know, sort of managerial career ended wasn't in that he fit, you know, had a fixed idea of how to play. So in other words, a Clough and a Wenger, which was just good football, but, you know, not able to compete at the highest level for whatever reason. You know, in some ways for, you know, Brian Clough, it was sort of structural and institutional. In other words, he just wasn't able you know, to compete, you know, with, you know, managers buying foreign players, spending huge amounts of money. It wasn't really, you know, his style or he wasn't able to adapt quickly enough. In other words, Nottingham Forest weren't able to spend the money that uh, an Arsenal could spend or a Manchester United or a Liverpool or a Tottenham. And with Wenger, it was more along the lines of just not being able to find the players to do what he wanted them to do. In other words, so... And to an extent, you could probably argue that... You know, he wasn't quite as sharp. So in other words, he just ended up sort of collecting all these attacking midfielders. But then, you know, you'd get the odd sort of, you know, almost half... You know, like a lottery ticket signing, like El Nenny. In other words, El Nenny had done all right for Basel, but he wasn't the long-term answer for defensive mid. But it was almost as if, well, maybe he'll develop. Maybe, you know, he'll just do a solid job, and that'll fix my problem. Much in the same way, a bit like Al Munoz. It's like, I'll just pick this random goalkeeper out of a, you know, you know Spanish second division team, I'll stick him in goal, and I think he'll turn, turn it around. And it, and it never quite worked out. So what happened to Ferguson was far more around the concept of legacy. In other words, Arsene Wenger's legacy at the Emirates and Arsenal is the stadium, is the Invincibles, is the double in 97-98, the double in the early 2000s. You know, the first, you know, Arsenal being 1-0 up in Paris against Barcelona, you know, the players, the memories, the goals, that's his legacy, you know. Brian Clough's legacy at Nottingham Forest is European champions, you know, the, you know winning the European Cup. You know, his success at Derby is getting them in the league, getting them to win the league title, that, that was his legacy. The bits afterwards are, you know, added, you know, in terms of wins, in terms of good football and good memories, but his legacy was really written at the start rather than at the end. And so for Ferguson, because you'd had such a long level of success, I suppose for him it was more around how do you end it? 
I mean, really, if he'd ha- you know, he wanted that that third Champions League, if he'd won that, he would have been you know happy as anyone. You know, it's not as if he had you know that's the worst thing that Alex Ferguson's managerial career ending on only two European Cups. Well, lots of people end with much worse managerial careers. Put it that way. And so, that last kind of last push for a Champions League. And at that point, things were starting to change. In other words, you had, at this point, Chelsea with Roman Abramovich. You had Manchester City with you know, Abu Dhabi and the sort of money that they were putting in to the top level of English football. And as a result, it was always very difficult. It, he was at the age... And the period of his career when he wasn't able to tear down Manchester United and start again. Which is really where it ends. So finally he gets to that last season and they go to play Real Madrid in the Czech quarterfinals and they get knocked out. Somewhat unluckily. You know, it was a fantastic Luka Modric goal but they were kind of harshly treated in the Nani red card. And at that precise moment it was the realisation that even if they spent some money in the summer, that team was nowhere really near to winning the Champions League. So in other words, giving in another year wasn't really going to, to make them nut. And at that point, you then start looking domestically and you could see that it was a, they had a poor Man City. You know, there was a poor... You know, all of these sort of surrounding teams weren't up to... Or weren't in a position to really compete for the title. But quite clearly they were all going to have new managers. More money put in. And at that point really ending on a league title was better than you know, the trying for another couple of years. On increasingly long shot attempts to win the Champions League. So you know, he retires in glory. But there wasn't therefore the same level of... I suppose, regime change or planning for the next administration. And so as a result, Ferguson, because his trifecta, his ideological, philosophical trifecta was really only ever about winning, Ferguson and Manchester United, there was no sense of, well, who do I, what do I leave the, the next guy? That wasn't, you know, what his... You know, sort of philosophy was it, it wasn't something he would have thought of in other words he did you know, when he did think about retiring that had been sort of you know 10-15 years earlier and even then he realised that he still wanted to carry on it wasn't a case of oh, I just want another couple of years he went on an extended period of time he even still had the emotional strength to rebuild Manchester United in the early sort of 2000s mid 2000s when they you know, really were finishing a distant second to Arsenal when you had the rise of Jose. Is that when he finally realised that it's time to leave, it's because he knows that he doesn't have that energy to rebuild the club. But he, that also means that he hadn't been looking into the future. He hadn't planned for what was the next great Manchester United team, who, who he had in that squad. I mean, in other words, the, the team that wins the last championship for Ferguson isn't a particularly good one. It's just built on the sort of mountain 
of success that Alex Ferguson had bought, you know, had built himself and built with Manchester United. It's why there's a slightly weird kind of relationship between sort of Manchester United fans and Alex Ferguson. In other words, it was never quite full love. There was always an appreciation and an understanding, but never quite the sort of devotion that, you know, Arsene Wenger had got at Arsenal, the sort of devotion that Clough had got at, at Forest. I suppose the dynamic would be that, I suppose for Manchester United, I'm probably at the, the deepest level is, well, was it just Ferguson? In other words, because, you know, when Ferguson you know, first, you know, started you know, pricking up ears of the football world at Aberdeen, he could go to, to Tottenham. And he did, decided to stay, and then goes to Manchester United. So the principle being is, if he rocks up in Tottenham in the late 80s, do, do Tottenham then have a period of unprecedented success? Do they become one of the teams of the 90s? And do Man United... Because, yeah, Man United are always going to be big, but if you look at their, their history... They've really only ever had two brilliantly successful managers. It's Busby and it's Ferguson. And if you sort of look into the sort of the history of it, is that the advantages that Ferguson and Busby have were these brilliant youth teams. So you had the, the Busby Babes, you had the class of 92, and these stalwarts, these players that just would play almost the entire length of their managerial careers. I mean, if you look at United's top ten appearance makers, it's fascinating, really, because usually with, with top ten appearances, there's always... It's one of those things that isn't context-specific. So, in other words, you will always have, especially old-school English clubs, you always have someone who played from, let's say, 1921 until you know, 1947. And that was back in the day when you didn't have substitutes, you didn't have huge squads. If you were able to walk, you played. And you could then rack up five, six, seven, eight hundred appearances before you'd be eventually, you know, sort of, you know, you'd miss one week, your replacement would come in from the youth team, and that was the end of your career. Or you'd move on to the lower leagues. Or you'd open a pub. It's that kind of. And if you look at United's one, you've only got one player on there that goes, I think it's 21 to. 40s and makes and and he's number 10 on the list so your other nine players you know five of them are from ferguson's era four of them are busby's era so in other words you know in the intervening time period between busby leaving in the 70s and ferguson taking over in the 80s virtually there's no one that gets anywhere close in terms of appearances for manchester United in that time period in other words you're either busby or you're ferguson and that's where Man United had their most longest success. So it was built on the longevity that is non-comparable. I don't think if you were to compare any other sort of... If you were to look at Tottenham's top ten appearance makers, you'd have some players from the 50s, you'd have some players from the 60s, the 70s, a few from the 80s, some from the 90s onwards. There'd be a mixture. But not Manchester United. It's either you were part of the you know Busby era... Or Ferguson. The rest of the t those p time periods were fallow years. You know, you'd have the odd FA Cup. You might have a, a you know a couple of attempts in the league, but you, there's no sustained success. There's always huge amounts of changes, new managers. There's no 
and there's no one that straddles it. A bit like if you were, con- I suppose the best way of doing it is if you think of the sort of New York Yankees dynasties. So you had, you know, players that would, you know, so you had Babe Ruth from the sort of, you know, 20s through to the 30s. You then had Joe DiMaggio into the sort of, from the late 30s into the 40s and the early 50s. You then had Mickey Mantle into the, you know, sort of late 60s. And then Thurman Munson, say, from the late 60s into the 70s. And that's when, you know, New York's New York Yankees were just phenomenally successful, won 20, 30 world titles. And even though they had this sort of down period in the sort of late 70s to the 80s to the early 90s, they still had uh, Don Mattingly, who was just a, a legend in you know, New York Yankees baseball. And he, his era, the one where they didn't win any titles, where sometimes the Yankees sucked. But you still had someone that bridged that time period. And Manchester United don't have any of those players. Which really then, you know, sort of leads on to the handover. In other words, I suppose the difficulty was is that... And this is where Man United are such a hard club to really define. Is that Real Madrid is quite straightforward and simple to define. They wear all white. You know, Real Madrid translates into English as Royal Madrid. They're considered the, the, the sort of team of Spain's hierarchy. So Franco was a, a Real Madrid fan, or at least associated himself with Real Madrid. You know, you know, a, a lot of the Spanish royal family, are, uh, uh, as far as I'm aware, are Real Madrid fans. It's that kind of... They're almost like, the, you know... They are the team of the hierarchy. And as a result, their you know, methodology it is we sign the best players. Even if it doesn't work, I think one of the classic examples was they signed a couple of players from the 1958 World Cup in Sweden. They signed a Swedish striker and the Brazilian playmaker. And already at this point, Real Madrid were phenomenally successful winning European Cups. You know, they were the dominant team of the 50s in both you know, Europe and Spain. So they signed these two players to really add. But at this point, obviously, they've their process, the club's idea was, we'll bring the striker in, and we'll bring the, the sort of, I suppose, playmaker. We'll stick the playmaker in the middle, we'll stick the striker up front, and as a result, we'll then push Alfredo Di Stefano back into sort of like the hole. So in other words, he'd play off the main striker, and because he's getting a bit older, his legs are heavier, he's not able to really, you know, I suppose, take on the, the mantle. Eventually, he'll be good for a couple more years. And we've then got his replacement, someone who will score the same amount of goals as he does. And someone who will create the same amount as he does. So we've got two replacements for the price of one. And we also then get a little bit of, you know, overlap where we'll have all three. So on paper, that kind of makes sense. But naturally, Alfredo Di Stefano does not, in any way, shape, or form, subscribe to this. You know, because he never played at a World Cup because of his complex international history of somehow managing to play for Argentina, Spain, and Colombia, and yet at no point ever actually managing to ever be available for any of those teams when they qualified you know, for a World Cup. So for him, it's a slight. 
so he basically refuses to pass to the uh, Swedish striker. And the problem is with the Swedish striker is, is that he wasn't a full professional. So in other words, I, I don't really know the full ins and outs of it, but my understanding of the sort of 58 Sweden team that gets to the final at home and gets beaten by Palais Brazil is that they were you know, pretty much semi-pros. And so for him to then join Real Madrid would mean he'd give up his international career. Because at the time, I believe Sweden didn't allow professionals to play for the national team. So he still played at a high level, but he was not the, the, the level of pro that, let's say, Spanish League or the English League, for example, of, this, of that era. Anyway, so he struggles and you know doesn't score many goals, gets loaned out and eventually decides to go back home and resume his career in Sweden. And the Brazilian playmaker, again... <laughs> doesn't really fit into Spanish football and you know Alfredo Di Stefano still you know is dominant and probably ups his game in result of this kind of snub and he eventually ends up moving on so even if it, when that fails Real Madrid still just carry on they will still carry on buying famous players they still have that ethos that is Real Madrid and there there are tweaks to it but at the same time they're a club that delight and their fan base and their history demands that they buy famous players even if it is at times almost self-defeating even if it doesn't work because when it does work you know like you had in the 50s and in the I suppose the Galacticos the early ones maybe like you know late 90s early 2000s and just the recent you know Real Madrid under Zidane when it works it can work fabulously and when it fails Yes, but it's at least failing in the Real Madrid tradition. In other words, having too many attacking players and it not quite working, and the coaches, you know, event, you know, one after the other, you know, getting sacked. But with United, it doesn't quite work in that way. When United do try and spend sort of huge amounts of money, when they try and build in that way, it never really quite works. In other words, the great, you know. Busby teams, you, they develop George Best from their youth system. They get Bobby Charlton. You know, they get Nobby Styles, and they do sign players, but not in the same way as, let's say, if you compare it to like one of the most famous transfers of the early sixties, is when Greaves comes back from his spell in Italy and joins Tottenham. Tottenham made big signings back in those days. They put money into it. United don't quite do that in the same way. And when they do try and spend money, it you know, in the eighties is sort of despairing, you know, attempts to compete with, you know, Liverpool and to an extent Everton, it, it doesn't quite work. It's like when they try and get, you know, when they get Rod Atkinson in and he spends a bit of money. It it never quite gels. Much in the same way if you look at, you know, with Sir Alex Ferguson when he signs sort of Juan Sebastian Veron. On paper, you could see how it could work. You could see you know, he was a talented player, but he didn't suit English football, and he didn't really, you know, the ethos of Manchester United. So they're not an outfit that automatically signs famous players and then they perform at the same level. Really, what they're good at is they're signing players who are nearly there, and then they become superstars. You know, Ruud van Nistelrooy, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo. They seem to have an ethos of developing players. Which therefore means that 
And I think this is one of the problems that they've had since Ferguson has left, is that what Ferguson was able to do was to build a platform on which, when you were signing for Manchester United, there was expectation, but there was a time period where the team would already be successful enough, which would then allow you to really you know, improve. So in other words, you know, for the first maybe 18 months at Manchester United, Cristiano Ronaldo was used as an impact stop. Some days it would, you know, pull off and he'd look like a world beater. Some days he would look, you know, like a, you know, skinny, one-trick pony. So there's all the step-overs and all of the moves, but then he wouldn't go anywhere. He'd fall over or he'd dive or he'd just, you know, try and beat three, four, four, five, six players, and it wouldn't work. And it was really only when he, you know, sort of bulked up and really started focusing on his, you know, sort of core game. In other words, it wasn't a case of impressing everyone with how talented you were. It was the end product. And then he becomes a sort of superstar and has the career at United and then Real Madrid. So really, what we've what we've established is that there wasn't a there hadn't been a natural decline that has allowed you know that happened at Arsenal that really allowed Unai Emery to come in and come up with a relatively straightforward processes. In other words, he made them work harder in training. He got more of a defensive shape. He brought a defensive midfielder. He brought a good goalkeeper. He you know essentially. Input a style, and Arsenal immediately reacted well to that. Some of the existing squad players have got better. The team are playing more as a collective. They're defending better. They're still not 100% there, but the results have automatically jumped up. And the fans are happy and more united. You know, even in, you know, even if you look at maybe Brian Clough... When he leaves in 93, he's relegated Nottingham Forest. But what he left in terms of a ideology, a style of football, really allows is that him leaving was the best thing. In other words, you know, in leaving and in relegating Nottingham Forest, it, does, it actually led to a regeneration. In other words, they have one year in the... Division 1, they immediately get promoted back and under Frank Clark, they finished third in their first season back in the Premier League in 94-95 playing you know, really good football. Is that that was a sort of legacy of Brian Clough. In other words, maybe the last few years of Brian Clough was just awful. You know, he was... You know, well, let's be completely blunt about it. He was, you know, a functioning alcoholic at that point. And, you know, he wasn't in a position to be you know, managing in the top flight. But his legacy and the imprint on it still meant that all it needed was a different manager. So, in other words, Frank Clark, who'd come, you know, played under Clough, was able to basically regenerate Cloughism and then immediately, you know, get Nottingham Forest back into the Premier League and back at the top level of, you know, qualifying for Europe. In the end, you know, obviously the size of Nottingham Forest and the change to the Premier League 
Now, they eventually, you know, got relegated and they've struggled to get back ever since, but, you know, they're still a lasting legacy. Nottingham Forest, when they are successful, play good football with young players, you know, committed to, you know, the style of football that, you know, Brian Clough would approve of. The difficulty for Manchester United and Ferguson was that, it was pretty obvious to the, the footballing world that that team had issues. They were ageing, there was you know, a lack of talent, it was a rebuild job. But no one wanted to be the first person to walk into Old Trafford and at the press conference say, this team needs to be pulled down. Because effectively you were saying to the champions of England, you aren't good enough. And there's probably no way that you could have done it in a PR sense without it looking like you've just basically slapped Sir Alex Ferguson in the face, you know, just as you're through the door, considering that what he's done for Manchester United and what you'd be saying to your new players. is it, And how would you then, in the space of one summer, buy X amount of players and regenerate that team to then be competitive against you know, Man City, Chelsea, who are... At that point, with new managers, spent a lot of money, but who, but whose core squads, although they had underachieved the season before, with the right, with the right signings, were clearly going to be very competitive. So really, there was no sort of top level manager that really wanted to take that job, which left them in a really, I suppose, really awkward position. I mean, I know there's some talk that that Jose wanted the job, but. Put it this way, if Jose Mourinho had, you know, let's say a week after Sir Alex Ferguson had retired, publicly said, I want the job, I think he would have back, you know, I think he'd have got the job. But if he did want it, he didn't make it clear enough or, you know, I know that there's a lot of talk that the board weren't convinced by his mannerisms and, you know, that he wasn't reflective of the Manchester United that they wanted. But so let's just for argument's sake state that at that exact moment in time he wasn't a goer wasn't an option and so really I suppose and this is where the and I, I think it's really fascinating is that effectively Sir Alex Ferguson is left with the it's almost dropped onto his desk, you know, in almost the sense of, look, we've gone all around Europe, we've gone around the Premier League, there is no obvious candidate, and anyone that we've, you know, essentially offered the job to has said no. It's a bit like that scene in Mike Bassett, England manager, when they basically, the FA go, you know, at the board meeting, say, well, who wants the job? And everyone has turned it down. And so he he's almost left in a kind of... Sort of, and he has a moment, I think, of a moment of reflection. And so really, because his success was, I suppose, so singular and so dominant, I suppose he never really got the ability to sort of give back. So I suppose, because it was always about winning. You know, there was no room for sentiment. So it wasn't as if there was 
an assistant manager that he'd, or one of his former players that he had really sort of groomed to be his replacement. It was, there was, Ferguson never allowed himself or Manchester United to think that far into the future. It was always about the here and now. And so I suppose, in a way, him personally, he had, you know, sown, you know, ended his career with, you know, Manchester United at Old Trafford with the Premier League title. It, that was about as good as it was going to get with the fact that the squad was weak. But that didn't really... That was personally satisfying, and that was satisfying for the general public. But what it meant was is that the world had changed so rapidly. And although he'd been able to keep up, that didn't mean that he necessarily agreed with it, in that sense. Is that you had the Glazers owning Manchester United. And as much as you know he never said anything publicly, you can imagine on some level you know, he disapproved of their methods. I mean, that's a guess on my part, but... And then you have sort of the proliferation of, you know, foreign managers and, you know, foreign players. And, you know, there, there has been brilliant, you know, parts to it. You know, you couldn't... Would the Premier League be as popular now, today, if not for Mourinho, if not for Benitez? Any, you know, any number of different, you know, players and managers that have added. But at some point... You know, we've all seen situations where there have been sort of foreign managers plucked out of, you know, obscurity, you know, simply because, you know, they looked good in a suit and they had that kind of stylistic look that, you know, maybe that person has the answer. And so British managers have declined. And I think that's something that probably did bother him in a way. So for him to effectively give it to David Moyes was almost like a way of giving back. Of you know really trying to, in his own way, I suppose trying to replicate. In other words, to give the opportunity that a future at Sir Alex Ferguson could then have the success that he had. So in other words, that you could basically you know go come from Scottish football, that you could come from the the lower divisions and work your way up to Manchester United. And so that's why David Moyes, in the same way, was probably the perfect candidate for him. In other words, yes, there were much better candidates, but none of them really wanted the job. So the idea of, you know, effectively saying, you know, you can manage Preston, you can then go to Everton and do a good job there, you can then be a domestic-based manager, and you can get to Old Trafford, just like I did. I can see why that must have, on some level, that really appealed. Unfortunately, the problem was is that it was a, a poison chalice. In other words, when he goes there, the scouting is bad. It's the organisation of the club. Just when you just focus purely on winning, and a lot of you know, because again, it comes back to this sort of the the, the trifecta is that you know because he was Ferguson, he won, and because he was Ferguson, he won. That made Manchester United successful. Because Manchester United was successful, that made Ferguson successful. And a successful Ferguson means you win. But the problem was is that that doesn't... There's no infrastructure behind it. In other words, once you take Sir Alex Ferguson out of that, the whole thing falls apart. And and there wasn't the, the underlying strength. There wasn't the, 
youth system that, you know, effectively Ferguson could use in 92 and with Gix. You know, the youth system, you know, and the, just the quality of players that Busby had available to him was, weren't there. And the squad itself was basically declining and was weak, but at the same time were champions. So it wasn't, he didn't, in other words, David Moyes never had the opportunity that, you know, Unai Emery had to say, okay, things have gone wrong, this is how I'm going to institute the change that will bring back the glory days. In other words, he was stuck evil with, you know, and really this is where David Moyes' sort of Manchester United career had, I suppose, never really was able to get started. He basically either had to say, I don't think this team has a future to it. And I am here to build the next great Manchester United team. There will be some short-term pain. But in the long term, in two, three years, Manchester United will be back up on top. You know, which you've had a long period of success on Ferguson. But it is not sustainable as it currently is. With the transfers, with the scouting, with the youth. With all of the things that the, the competitors had been able to... invest in to try and compete with Ferguson you know bringing in foreign managers bringing in you know training bringing in fitness coaches upgrading the training ground all of that was a way of trying to compete with Ferguson and the dominant position Manchester United were in you know having billionaires taking over football teams in other words the greatest success you know that Sir Alex Ferguson ever had was that the only way that Manchester City could compete was to spend a billion. It's a bit like a joke that you could have made in the you know mid-90s when Man City were in Division 2. How much money would it take for Man City to get on a par with Manchester United? And it really was a billion. You know, a billion plus. But obviously none of that expenditure really happened at United. Because as long as you had Ferguson, then you had wins, and as long as you won... Manchester United was successful. And that's really it. Manchester United's history has been the you know, great man theory of history. However, those great men had you know, so much in common and had so many advantages in terms of the size of Old Trafford, in terms of the infrastructure, that if you didn't have that, then you, you, know, you didn't... You weren't in a position to have the longevity. So you were always struggling to effectively trying to... In other words, anyone that replaced Matt Busby was trying to replicate and was to try and to match his level of success with none of the advantages that Busby had. And a similar thing has happened really at Manchester United. In other words, Ferguson really had three, four, five years in which to get rid of the drinking culture. To get rid of the older players, the players who weren't able to perform and to bring in you know, players that he believed in. And then you had this youth system that allowed him to you know, have three or four years of success with one team, tear that team down and rebuild it with the next level of... You know, that's the one thing that Ferguson was brilliant at, was use, you know, having a great period of success and then rebuilding and a whole new one and sometimes it overlapping. In other words... You, know, you you have the you never win anything with kids. 
technically that was true, but the advantage was is that it wasn't as if all of those older players were sold in one summer and then you just had the class of 92 and a couple of, you know, other players. What you had was the class of 92, but you would have a Brian McClare, you would have just enough experience and just enough places, a Gary Pallister, which would then allow you to maintain that level of success and then once the you know class ninety were able to take on the mantle, you could then you know move those players out into squad players, or you'd sell them for a little bit of money, and then you could bring in you know another experienced player like a Henningberg, that kind of situation. But what we're now really doing is we're now moving into an era when the great man theory of history doesn't really apply. In other words, and specifically not to football. You can't really replicate it. You couldn't sit there today and say, we want a manager that is going to be there for 10 to 15 years. You know, the We're going to have a handful of players, maybe half a dozen players play 500 games plus, and most of those players are going to be youth team players. And they're going to stay there for their whole careers at Manchester United. And all of that will happen round about the same time period and we'll have that level of stability, and then we'll just bring in players when and if needed. If you were to start that principle now, I don't see how you could be successful. Because you, manage, management has changed, and the players have changed, especially youth team players, is that it is very difficult in the, if you're in the top four, the top six, to try and bring in young players. Because not only is the level of talent so high in first teams, is that you know young players need maybe, what, 10, 15, sometimes they need a season, sometimes 18 months to get up to, you know, to get to that level. But in that 18 months, you might finish fifth, and that means that you've not qualified for the Champions League, that means you've lost 50, 60, 100 million pounds, and your best striker might decide that, well, actually, I don't want to stay here. I'm going to Real Madrid. It's that kind of principle. And really, for a manager, you know, no manager today could join a top four team and say, I'm not going to win anything for four or five years. We're going to finish maybe tenth one year, maybe ninth. But by year four, if you just trust in me, we have won the title. You don't have that, you know, time frame and you don't have that level of control. And this is, I suppose, where. You know, the question mark really is if on Ed Woodward. Now, for my mind, is that my position really on the Glazers and Ed Woodward is that the Glazers, in how much debt they saddled Manchester United with and how much money they have taken out of the club, is... is vulture capitalism. I don't particularly agree with it. I don't think it was necessarily the right thing to do on a moralist moralist sort of standpoint. However, what they did wasn't illegal. And it is common in the corporate world. But this is... There is something fundamentally different in the world of sports to corporate and that you know for sports to mean anything it can't be treated as corporate 
In other words, you know what? If if you decide to buy IBM and you know in a in a takeover and you know saddle it with seven hundred million pounds of debt, as long as IBM still carries on, if the glass that's what the Glazers want to do, fine by me. It's not the you know. But Manchester United mean something in a way that IBM don't. However, if I'm looking at it from the sort of flip side, is that effectively the Glazers want Manchester United to be successful and profitable so that, you know, as the owners, they get the success and the profits from said success. There is no... There is no ulterior motive. And, you know, you might, you know, they are just pure capitalists. And that depends on your political view of the world, whether you think that's fantastic, whether you disagree with it. But you know exactly what they're there for. In other words, their custodianship of Manchester United, they understand that it has to maintain a certain level of success on the field which will maintain the profitability, which will maintain their profits. And yes, they have put more than enough money in terms of the you know, transfers, in terms of wages, that they are committed to Manchester United being successful on the field. You know, this is not a Mike Ashley situation. In other words, and it, it really does come to a, a certain, I suppose, philosophical standpoint is can an owner of a football club ever be truly hands-off in other words Mike Ashley is hands-off in other words you know for long periods of time he doesn't go to Newcastle games I mean I'm talking more sort of last season than this season and simply he wanted to sell and for it his principle was I want to maintain Newcastle United as a Premier League outfit that is profitable and here is my asking price as long as that is met I will sell the club I'm not going to run the club into the ground necessarily but I am not going to spend anything more than the absolute bare minimum to sustain the the bottom line so that is hands off but the point is, is that that philosophy even if he's not there has effectively trickle down into Newcastle United. That's why they don't go on cup runs. It's why it's why there's just huge elements of the Newcastle fan base and the city as a whole that is just turned off Newcastle United because it is hard work because the tone and tenor is one of slow decay. It's a bit like building companies that buy historical properties in the centre, city centre and let them just decline. In other words, it's an eyesore and it's just a daily, hourly blow to the, you know, the morale of the city. So even if he is hands-off, that philosophy is still in place. And really that's what, what's come down to sort of Manchester United is that, you know, effectively... They will say, this is how much money we're going to put into Manchester United. Spend it however you wish. Maintain the level of success that we need to promote our bottom line. Now, the point is, Manchester United's bottom line is to make large profits for the Glazers, 
whereby Mike Ashley's bottom line is as long as you're making a small profit or a very small loss, as long as you're in the Premier League and as long as the checks from the Premier League and the TV money keeps coming in, fine, I will keep this organisation afloat because I can sell it later for huge profit on what he originally sold it for. But as a result, the problem is is that you're coming up against someone like Man City with the concept of sports washing. Now, my point is is that the Glazers have no ulterior motive. You know, there is no sense that they are trying to burnish their family's, you know, reputation in Manchester and in the world of football. The Glazers' reputation isn't particularly high and I don't think it bothers them in any meaningful sense of the word. Whereby for Man City, everything has to look perfect and wonderful because it's a way of you know selling Abu Dhabi it's a way of reputation management which the problem is is that you'd have to say that Man City are much better run than Manchester United but there is an ulterior motive to Man City looking you know in other words the training ground being perfect the women's team being fantastic the everything about this club being you know, almost Stepford Wives perfect, is that there, you know, there's a reason behind that money being put in there. Whereby, at least for Man United, as badly run as it is, it's done in a good faith way. They are trying, but they're just not trying hard enough or well enough. So really, it comes down to, I suppose at this point, attributing blame. So the point is, is that by abdicating responsibility, in other words, by just throwing money at it, it forces a tremendous amount of pressure on the Glazers and who they appointed to effectively run the day-to-day -day operations. So in other words, they would be fantastic owners if at that exact moment in time they had a brilliant, fantastic, resourceful chief executive with huge amounts of experience of football who would then say look you give me the money I will run the day-to-day -day running of it I will pick the right manager the right backroom staff the infrastructure will be done and you will then keep getting your checks Mike Ashley style in the post you know from Manchester United finishing in the top four in the last stages of the Champions League every year and winning titles and all you have to do is turn up to Manchester in May to parade the trophies around Old Trafford they didn't. You know, that's where you end up with Ed Woodward. And as a result, because he doesn't have that level of football experience or the vision or the ideology. In other words, you can criticise Daniel Levy and there are plenty of people out there, Spurs fans or otherwise, who do so. But it is undeniable that he knows how to run a football club. And he has a theory, a philosophy, an ideology and a process. You may not like that process, but it, his point, you know, Daniel Levy's attitude towards management is, I know exactly what I want in a manager, and I will go through 10 managers if I get that one right manager. And so when he finds that manager, as he has done in Pochettino, things have done amazingly well. 
when he has tried to find that manager and it hasn't worked, you get Wande Ramos. And so that has pluses and minuses to it. But there's also the nuance in there. In other words, his attitude was, I want a resourceful, skillful, you know, foreign manager. And at first glance, Wande Ramos looked like that manager. Turned out, didn't work out. But instead of them just picking another identikit for a manager, you know, like a lottery ticket, and that one of them eventually would be successful, he was, you know, savvy or lucky enough to work out that actually, in that exact moment of time, with two points from eight games, Harry Redknapp would have, you know, some benefits. He wasn't the perfect manager for what he would philosophy that he was trying to input into the long run, but in the short to medium term, Harry Redknapp played good football, was a good motivator and could improve some of the players. And lo and behold, Harry Renup takes Tottenham into the top four, takes them into the last stage of the Champions League. None of that seems to exist with Ed Woodward. In other words, he sort of palms off the decision. I suppose he... Problem was is that he took over the job in a very difficult position. In other words, David Gill probably should have stayed on another year. But and helped or hit ran the show for a little bit longer and then you can bring Ed Woodward in. But it didn't happen and the Glazers, quite frankly, they knew Ed Woodward from the takeover and it was his problem. Deal with it. So he ends up, you know, really effectively in some way, shape or form, subcontracting it off to Ferguson, who then picks Moyes. And the problem and this is where the sort of decay has come in at Manchester United. At every stage, they have a very you know, Woodward has a very old school philosophy in giving management managers control. And the problem is, is that the only way that really works is if you've got the playing squad or and a manager with the clear style of play. That matches. So, in other words, if you've got a workaday team with you know a couple of big men up front, and you play, you know, you you defend tight, and you you know the football isn't great, but it's effective. Then, if you had that team, putting David Moyes in charge would make some degree of sense. He would then be able to work with those players, and he would have players in mind to bring in and you'd have some level of success that David Boys will bring to you. Now, if you therefore have that, you know, Wimbledon-esque team, putting Roberto Martinez in charge will probably not quite work. Because Roberto Martinez wants to play three at the back, pass the ball around, and unless you're willing to sit there and give him three years to completely overhaul the squad to get it how he wants and you don't care about you know you're not as bothered about the bottom line of the results and the fans aren't going to be you know protesting or you know boycotting the game then you're fine but Manchester United have never had that you don't have that amount of time to really build a team it is always and this is the point is is that Man City have had a project from ownership down to the executives they have hired, and the executives have then hired the you know, sort of football, you know, the front office. So in other words, you know, the people that pick the manager and the people that help build the training ground, and they have then picked a manager. So the point is, is that 
over those periods of time, they've had enough time to rebuild the training ground, improve the level of the youth system, and have all of those bits and pieces so that they were working towards Guardiola. None of that's happened at United. In other words, Moyes' greatest problem that he had at Manchester United was he saw all of the problems that effectively, I think he was hoping that he would be given six years to fix that problem and that by years three and four, they'd be competing for the title. And he never ascertained that he didn't have the level of political capital in football and with Manchester United and with the media to be given that amount of time. He had to basically almost split his job into two. He had to be a chief executive or a director, his own director of football and focus half of his time on building the scouting network, building the training ground, you know, reinstituting you know, a front-to-back review of the club and how it, the operations of it and how it was running. And the other 50% of the time of getting them up to the top four and playing just good enough football that you were at least looking as if, you know, that they're, that you'd stabilise the club. A bit like, you know, what Wenger did in the last, you know, maybe the first four or five years after they moved to the Emirates. When it just felt like every single year, in March, Tottenham would be eight, nine, ten points clear, and then they would do just enough by the back end of the season, they'd be playing West Brom away, and they'd just win, and they'd finish above our, finish above Tottenham in the top four. But Moyes was never... And that's, to be fair, the way how I'm you know, elucidating it now, that's pretty much impossible. Unless he would have had to have gone in some way, shape or form public. That's why things went wrong. Is that he never established the confidence in the football club that would and in his management style to allow him to be able to own that process. Which is really why after 34 games he looked drawn, he looked out of ideas, it was too much and he wasn't experienced enough and it, dealing with a club the size of Manchester United with some of the institutional problems that they had which was really that Ferguson was able to overcome by just sheer personal magnetism and his own experience and in the fact that he'd in his last The Mohicans way is that he'd been through so many different periods of football history that just allowed him to handle these sort of problems in a way that someone like David Moyes who'd at Everton you, there was always constraints in other words, one of my favourite things I've reading about David Moyes was when he was at Everton. This is last year, and he was explaining his scouting, you know, sort of database he had, and it was very intelligently done. In other words, they the players had to be the right age, the right height, all of these different skills, and you know whether Everton could sign him, and all of these other bits and pieces. And there was he sort of had three or four scouting guys, and he had this huge database of information which allowed him to make these the sort of unheralded signings that basically built his Everton you know, team to what they were. The problem is is that you can take that sort of scouting information and then just take it over to Manchester United. Manchester United, in terms of when you're trying to buy players, 
it's a t completely different ball game. In other words, Everton, you was, you're looking for rough diamonds here. That with Manchester United, you needed great players who have the ability to play at Old Trafford, and also a way of, you know, building your own managerial sort of power base, especially with the fans of saying, "I brought in this player, this player, this player," uh, and in the end. It, you know, he was in someone who's almost just sort of not quite self-aware enough at the at the PR aspect of what he was doing. In other words, the first two players that he sort of tried to buy were Marouane Fellaini and Leighton Baines. They were his own players at Everton. In other words, you had the whole world, you know, you know you know, relatively huge budget in comparison with anything he'd ever had at Preston or Everton. And his first thought process, even with all the information they'd had previously, was I'll just sign a couple of players that I've played under, you know, who I've managed. And it just looked small time. And it looked as if he didn't have the reputation to sign the sort of stars and the sort of high-profile players that United need to get a quick turnaround, to keep you in the top four just long enough that the sort of changes you were making on you know, the infrastructure side, the, the medium to long term, would then leave you in a position where you'd have young players coming through and you'd be able to you know, utilise the six years that he had. He, you know, David Moyes thought he had four, five, six years. He had a year. And that was his, his major failing. So when they got rid of him, the difference was is that they just, again, subcontract it out. In other words, instead of saying, OK, well, maybe we, you know, we need a full branch review. In other words, what David Moyes has said, quite correctly, was that the infrastructure side of things were terrible. Well, OK, then you need to get a director of football in who will focus on that. And then you can then get a man and then you can get that director of football to pick a manager that he thinks is going to be right for the you know the playing squad they have, so maybe it might be a younger manager who will then build some of the younger players, or you might get a, you know, an up and coming British coach, or you might get an older coach. What they do is they basically just say, well, who's looking hot managerially, and you know, Louis Van Gaal was available. Okay, great, you know, he'll you know because of the job he had done at Ajax. Well, you know, he was almost his own director of football. You know, he brings young players through. He will sort it out. But the problem was is that Louis Van Gaal was was getting long in the tooth. You know, there was you know, the he saved his managerial career by going back to you know Holland after some very really high profile, you know, difficulties that he had at Bayern and difficulties at Barcelona. And then and won the era of Devise with A.K. Ausmar. Now, the problem was is that I think the alarm bells should have probably been ringing in the sense that he'd already had sort of these funks and that yeah, he wasn't quite you know at his peak, and this was someone who had you know absolutely no experience of English football. But you get the feeling that they would just, you know, that Woodward was just seduced by the idea that effectively he would just change everything about Manchester United and, you know, take the club forward.
And I suppose my argument about you know Louis van Gaal was it that he had two seasons and that they were the wrong way round. If in the first season that he'd had, he'd got that team to finish fifth and won the FA Cup, even with with the style of football that he played, which was not particularly aesthetically enjoyable, and then in the second season, finished the season really strongly to then finish in the top four, I think he'd have probably got a third year. But because he, you know, finished fourth, and then in the second season dropped off, finished fifth, there was just this sense of panic. But it's also, I think it's very easy to focus on the, again, sort of great man theory of sort of history, that it was simply, you know, the Glazers, you know, being antipathy and just leaving it all to Woodward and Woodward's inexperience, leaving it to just, you know, Van Hal and Moyes. I think at some point Manchester United fans you know, have have an element of responsibility for this. I think at some points they've been somewhat, I suppose, inarticulate. You know, I, I've spoken about this to Manchester United fans that I know, and it's like, well, well, what do you actually want as a football team? And it seems to be this very muddled kind of wish list. It seems to start with, well, they want fast-flowing, attractive football, but winning football. It, You know, success at home and abroad, but year-on-year improvement. But you need world-class players, but you want youth breaking through. And the point is, is that, well, how could anyone mix all of those different bits and pieces in and turn that around so quickly? You know, I think the classic example is really Liverpool fans, right? So they'd had this sort of unprecedented run of success in the you know, late 60s, the 70s, and the 80s in particular. And then they went on a sort of downward kind of... Not, you know, not a particularly awful period. I mean, you know, there was no relegations, no finishing in the bottom half of the table, but... It was, you know, a clear downgrade from where they were, especially with Manchester United winning everything. But the fans were able to recalibrate pretty quickly what their concept of success was in the sort of nineties and two thousands. Is that they almost focus more on the sort of the style of play and the players. So in other words, if you had a Torres, if you had a Gerard, if you had the sort of Spice Boys, as long as there was good football. And, you know, the sense of more to come. And if there was cup finals in the intervening time period. So if you won the League Cup. So if and the, you got to the FA Cup final. If you were basically, you could still argue that, if Liverpool fans could still argue that Wembley was Anfield South, then they were happy. They weren't ecstatically happy. They still wanted to be successful in Europe. They still wanted to, you know get back to that dominance and they wanted to win the league and they wanted to win the European Cup but they were able to understand that Gerard Houllet in winning that treble of the cup the FA Cup and the UEFA Cup was a good standing point was a good staging post to that you know you you don't get Rafa Benitez and the success they had in winning the European Cup without Gerard Houllet winning the treble 
it's that kind of process and it does take a while but the point is I think Liverpool fans on some spiritual level just just realised that they'd had an unprecedented amount of success with the boot room you know it wasn't you know logi- logical that that success was going to be forever and if this was a downswing as long as they were working towards getting back up there and as long as it was the football was good in the intervening time periods you'd have some bad you know it would be worth it in the end. Which I think most Liverpool fans would say the failures of the Julier regime you know, was worth it if it gets you to the point where you have Istanbul and Gerald lifting the European Cup. But you don't really get that with Manchester United. You don't get the sense of, well, OK, maybe for a few years we'll just finish in the top four. But, you know, uh, but in that time period we'll start playing good football or we'll focus more on youth development. I mean, my... My argument would be is that really, you know, can Manchester United become the Athletic Bilbao of the North? By that, what I mean is, is that you have Athletic Bilbao in La Liga. Now, their ethos is basically, we just want, you know, local Basque players to play for us. So, in other words, their whole ethos and ideology as a club is youth development. So, in other words, they have. And it's really quite a clever way how they work it is that they don't have, is that they really, I think they start at 13, is that everything before then, it's just the local children are just playing for local clubs. And the idea is, is that all of those local clubs will basically say, you know, effectively, these are the players we think have the capability of, you know, making it in the Bilbao youth system. So eventually these kids then go to trials. And if you're signed up, you know, the idea is is that you basically, you, know, you have to focus so intensely on you know, your local players because you can't bring in foreign players. You can't bring in, you know, journeyman pros from different, you know, parts of Spain. And it's from that lack of resources that makes their youth system so fantastic. In other words, they develop brilliant players who they then sell on. And they can then get the profits from that and put that back into, you know, the youth development side of it. Now, I'm not saying that... And I think you could have something similar. Now, I'm not saying that you go as far out as getting a map of Manchester, drawing a big circle around it and saying nobody can play from Manchester unless you're born in that circle. But you can put that ethos down to it. You can focus on local development. You can say we're a counterpoint to Man City. Man City will sign... Rich players, you know, will spend fifty million on a centre half if they need one. They'll spend fifty million on a fullback if they need one. And really, what you're trying to say is to reconnect Manchester United to Manchester. You know, you've had the whole problem with places. You, know, you that has led to FC United of Manchester. You know, you have a much bigger scale in comparison with Bilbao in terms of your revenue, your historical profile, your global reach. You know, you don't have to be as hardline as they are, but you could put that. You could almost create some form of charter and say, well, this is what we're going to do. We've got, we want, let's say, five local players in our team, or three, or you, know, you can basically make it up as you go along. And then you could say, well, you know, we're going to have, you know, management is going to be at least three years, come what may. And... You know, you might even you might even sort of um, by not being as hard line, you could say you can allow foreign born players into your youth system, 
but you're still focusing on the youth side of it. If that is what you know, Manchester United's success has been has been on longevity of managers and youth players. Well, that's really what the Glazers should be focused on, and they should write that into their. You know, that can put you ahead of the curve. In other words, we've all seen with, you know, Chelsea and Man City, they have world class youth systems, but it doesn't actually impact their, you know, teams. You know, Phil Foden may well be the best English midfielder of his generation, and so far. It has not made any difference onto where Man City are in the league, and that's where you could put United ahead of the curve. You know, you, you know, showing commitment to domestic managers, and also you're resetting. You know what the Glazer regime stands for. You know, there is a power vacuum at Manchester United, but that can be a positive if you sit there and decide that you're going to fill it with your talent with your ex-players in coach in management and upper management you've already got Nicky Butt you've got what Phil Neville has done with the England women's team and how fantastic he's done there you have Gary Neville to an extent you've got Giggs you know, you're Beckham at executive level you've got Rio Ferdinand you know, you've got people that could be director of footballs chief executives director of the academy you know what you're trying to do in some way, shape, or form is to com- build a sort of comparative version of you know the Anfield boot room for the twenty first century. You know you what United need is to reverse the need for a great man that's going to come down from your and you know save everything. I mean that's really what you've had with the you know sort of Jose Mourinho thing is that really you, what you've discovered with Van Hoel is that he was too long in the tooth for English football. In other words, because of his age and how long he'd been in management, he wasn't adept enough and agile enough mentally to sit there and realise that the football that he you know, was trying to play was of a different generation. And that in English football, you know, you might be able to get away with it in Portugal or Holland or somewhere else if you had the right personnel. But if you tried at English football with Manchester United, with the squad he had, to play that level of football, yes, you could get into the top four, but you were always going to... There was a glass ceiling in, put in there. And it was only going ever going to get worse. You were never going to win the political battle that you have at Old Trafford in getting the fans. And this is not just the local fans. It's not the fans at, at Old Trafford. You're talking about a global supporter base. Which really leads on to where you know where you end up with Mourinho is that basically they have what they have bought was the brand Mourinho. What they thought was if we get Mourinho, Mourinho leads to success quickly. He, he you know that's what he does is that he goes to Chelsea and you win. He goes to Real Madrid and you win. He goes to Inter and wins. But what that's not really understanding is that Jose Mourinho is not a builder of football teams what he is is someone that has that if you give him the right resources he will mold that resource into success but even now he's again not at his peak and that's the same thing that you could say about van Gaal. and i'm aware that there you know my concept of manchester united being the, the athletic bill battle i understand that there are cons to it it, you know, it's unprecedented in English football for you to put you know, some form of charter about you know, the makeup of the team. In other words, you know, the only thing that you really have with Manchester United and sort of youth 
of that's anywhere close to a rule is that the concept is that from about the 1930s onwards there's always been at least one player from the youth system either on the bench or in the team and that to say maybe that you want a minimum of three or a minimum of five or you know that most of the team will be English maybe you only have three foreign players that's unprecedented and it's it's not a guarantee of success City are already you know so far in front that you know it's going to take a lot of years and it does, it puts stress on your youth development you know, infrastructure, which as we've worked out with, you know, David Moyes is behind City, Chelsea and Spurs. I mean, and also whether you'd get some form of consensus between the foreign, you know, Manchester United fans, the non-Manchester domestic, you know, fan base in this country, and the local fan base, would they ever... You know, would such a large and diverse fan base ever truly reach consensus of whether this was a successful way to go? But if it does work, you know, in the sense of you look at what Barca and La Misa and the success they had with that team under, you know, Rijkaard, Guardiola and Luis Enrique, you look at what England have done once they've, you know, once they put renewed investment into their youth system, in other words, they started winning tournaments, you know, at youth international level, and now you've had, you know, in the space of one year, you've now had an England team in two semi-finals of a major tournament. I think some some of what this comes back to is the so what Rahm Emanuel said, and it was quite a controversial thing when he said it at the time, was that you, you can never waste a good crisis. And this is really a, a way of, of getting the fans to believe in something. You know, if you have this sort of ideological charter. And if you then really actualise what you want the next great Manchester United team to look like. You know, do you want them to be British braced? Do you want them to be young? You know, do you want them to have an English manager? You know, what... How long are you prepared to wait? All of these bits and pieces. I mean, if you look at it now, what you're getting is a situation where they've signed lots of big players. You know, you had Angel de Maria. Well, that's not really worked. You know, you had, you know, Alexis Sanchez. And that's not really worked. You know, the only people that you, the only person that you could say, you know, who's a real big name who they've signed that has worked was Latan Ibrahimovic. But... That was a short-term move. In other words, for every single goal he scored, is that there was a you know there was an ensuring drag because the, the style of play to get Zlatan twenty plus goals was so slow and was so really in some ways ill suited to the Premier League. It, I mean, in other words, it's a fantastic example of how good Zlatan is. Is that for how limited he was physically, that he was still able to score that many goals. However, the point is is that, yes, it proves that Zlatan is, was a great player, but look at all the damage it did around. It's a bit like Darren Bent. Darren Bent would score you 20 goals, but the rest of the team, because they had to be calibrated to get Darren Bent 20 goals, would themselves collectively score 20 goals, which would leave you with 42 goals from a like 38-game season, which means that you can't finish anything more than about 10th, and that's assuming that your defence is pretty good. You know, it's a you know it creates a artificial sort of glass ceiling on what, what you can do and where you can go. 
I mean, if you look at it, you've had a situation where United's you know, sort of transfer policy of the last couple of years has been basically, well, if somebody else wants him, then we'll just sign him. In other words, Lukaku was wanted by Chelsea. They couldn't agree the agent's fees, or they couldn't you know, agree that part of it. And Man United were just happy to throw money at it, because, well, if Chelsea want Lukaku, then he must be quite good. And then we can just stick him up front. Much in the same way with Alexis Sanchez. Okay, we'll give you know Man City a black eye by stealing Alexis Sanchez. But yeah, but what do you do with Alexis Sanchez when you ha- and then they haven't really thought well how would he work with Romelu Lukaku? You've had a similar sort of situation with Fred. They were linked with him. Oh, City want him then? Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll throw fifty million at that, and then we'll leave it all to kind of you know like Mourinho or you know we'll leave it all to Van Holt, who then in other words the Man United squads none of them are bad. It's never they've never had a bad squad really since you know really since Moyes has left, but there's no underlying plan. There's no plan for how that twenty five players will look in two or three years time. But then that's because the the fans themselves haven't allowed anyone long enough to actually think what's going to happen in year three. In other words, Mourinho in his first season. You know, because they were going to finish sixth, the only way that he could make sure that he'd have a second year was you had to win the League Cup. You then had to win the Europa League. Much in the same way that, you know, Van Hal's mistake was to have two seasons but put them in the wrong order. Much in the same way that, you know, David Moyes' Man United job really comes down to if they had beaten Bayern Munich and got through to the semi-finals of the Champions League, maybe then he'd have been given a second year. And already in year three, there's a huge amount of pressure on Mourinho. And really, what you have to think about, as much as Mourinho is degraded in comparison with his heyday, is that Pep Guardiola had five years where Man City were just building the football club so that when he would eventually get there, it would only maybe take a year before they were up to you know the stage where they were winning 100 points in a season. You know, United have years and years and years of infrastructure that they need to rebuild and that they are, I believe, in the process of rebuilding. But what they have to do is they also have to have an ideology to match up with that infrastructure. You know, what, where, how, what and where do you want Manchester United to be in three years? Who do you want playing for them? What style? What manager do you want? And that's something that not only the fans have to deal with, but Woodward and the Glazers. And they have to have some overarching point to really build from. They need something like you know what Daniel Levy has, an idea of what he wants Tottenham Hotspur Football Club to do that matches up with their budget and where they can go, but that also looks into the future. And United don't have that. And there is that inarticulacy. In other words, they're always looking for the shortcut. They're always looking for the, ah, Van Gaal will sort that out. Ah, what if we get Mourinho? That'll sort that out. Much in the same way that some of the em- emotional issues that, that you know, the club, the traumas that they've had. I mean, it's best encapsulated by Pogba. In other words, Manchester United have a history of young players coming through and becoming Manchester United heroes. Best issue, it's a classic example, comes over from Northern Ireland. You know, 
sets himself up in Manchester, has some homesickness, and then becomes this superstar, this absolutely dominant figure of British football. Who really encapsulate what Manchester United is all about. And... And so with all of the problems that you had with the fallout from Ferguson leaving, I think Pogba, the fact that he left on a free transfer, that he got iked with Ferguson and then left and then had all of this fantastic commercial and success on the field with Juventus just was really just an, a dagger, you know, just that kept on just jamming them every time that they had bad success or problems with Moyes and problems with Van Hal. And so the idea was is that, and it made sense on paper, and this is part of the problem with United, is that they thought, well, if we bring back Pogba, then we're, you know, utilising that youth history that we had. You know, he's come through the youth system at Manchester. He's one of our own. You know, he's also got this commercial appeal that the Glazen and Ed Woodward and the worldwide, and that would help our, you know, empire building at home and abroad by signing him. Yeah, and he's so good as a player that he'll become the the leader, the, the heartbeat of the next, you know, great Manchester United team. We will build around him. And yet, the problem is, is that part of the reason he left in the first place, because he has that sense of wanderlust. In other words, he yeah, there's always going to be a bigger, better deal out there. In other words, you know, if he really was, you know, purely committed to United, he'd have never left in the first place. You know, he just wasn't prepared to wait... You know, and it, of course he would have got into the Manchester United first team. He was too talented not to. But then he, he's moved on and he's had success. But he's a singular talent. He's not someone that you can build around in the same way that you could say about a Harry Kane. And that's the, the end conclusion. Is that until Manchester United realise that you can't build culture on the cheap. And that you can't just simply sort of... St- steal it you can't just say well okay we'll put Mourinho we'll put Lukaku and we'll put Pogba and they will then become the the mainstays of of Manchester United that it's the great man theory of history in other words Louis van Gaal was a great man great man manager Jose was a great manager and they will bring us to you know to the sunny uplands and it doesn't work in some way shape or form Manchester United have to really introspectively work out what that football club means and how that can then create success into the future. Thanks for listening.